This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome to the Burns event. Happy Burns Day to you all. Very nice to see so many people turning out. My name is Professor Randall Stevenson. I'm only here to introduce this event, and therefore I will be brief and to the point and then vanish appropriately, like something out of time of shanter. I hope only better dressed, I trust. <laughs> um, I will introduce this event under two auspices. The first of these, it's a swink event, swink standing for Scottish writing in the 19th century. There are more swink events and the director of swink, no less, is Dr. Benny Fielding sitting just in front of me. One of their great innovations, as you will quickly have spotted, is the extension of the 19th century, <laughs> back at least as far as 1759, when Burns was born. But they can show you many more amazing things of that kind if you stay tuned to them. I want you to stay tuned to another institution, which is mine, which is the Department of English Literature. Not only mine, I must add. <laughs> it's uh, distinguished not only by being not only mine, but by being no less than 250 years old, more or less now. It scarcely shows its age. It is still the best department in Britain by a long way, but it has been around longer than any of the others. So one of the things we're doing this year, as you saw before it was Robert Burns, is celebrating 250 years of English literature in Edinburgh. Very appropriate to do that through Burns. One of the things we want to do is not only to talk about the ways we have analysed rhetoric and belles for the past 250 years, but about some of the people who've been writing the beautiful letters and producing the rhetoric about which we in due course should so eloquently talk. One of these is undoubtedly Burns, who came to Edinburgh, as you know. Burns knew the first Regis Professor of English Literature, Hugh Blair, inaugurated by George III in 1762. Robert Burns also knew the second Professor of Rhetoric and Bell Lettre, who took over from Hugh Blair some years later. And Burns also, I should record memorably, managed to insult the first professor by saying how much he preferred the second <laughs> professor. And he made this comment while having dinner in the house of the first professor. So much as Robert Burns may have got his lines right in poetry, they perhaps weren't always right in conversation. But we're concerned always to keep in view literary writers as well as the literary critics who talk about them that leads me to tonight's panel, which in a sense is a wonderful mixture of those two idioms, of the critical and the creative, the discursive and the poetic. That's to say, in introducing those along the front, whom we must, I guess, learn to call the serious Burns unit in the Department <laughs> of English Literature, who are the learned doctors in that unit. They're fortunately sitting in quite a convenient space. Those will talk, I won't introduce one by one, I'll introduce them all at the beginning so as I can disappear, as promised. But on my extreme left, Robert Allen Jimison, a poet of an otherly disposition, Shetlandic and not Atlantic Drift, a book of poems some couple of years ago. Also, De Happy Land, a novel which you might know, which came out the summer before last, if I remember. Next to speak after Robert Allen Jimison will be Dr. Penny Fielding, whom I introduced a moment ago as the director of Swink, another northerly critic of a northerly disposition, Scotland and the Fictions of Geography, 1760 onwards, is one of Penny's books. You can ask her about that sometime. Um, the 1760 date, as you notice, is carefully placed as the start of the 19th century, once again. Next to Dr. Penny Fielding, following on from that, Professor Susan Manning will read for his third. 
distinguished also by a great deal of work in that period, apart from transatlantic relations between Scotland and the United States, what union meant in those places, but also what that wonderful idiom of the 1760s, the Enlightenment, meant to Scotland and its writers. Moving back, partly towards the creative side, but also really both, that Alan Gillis, like a colossus, straddled that divide between criticism and literature. Somebody who has written books about Irish poetry, but is also a poet of increasing distinction himself. The last book of his I know best is Hawks and Doves, but there have been other collections since then. And next to Alan, Dillis Rose, most prolific creatively, perhaps of anybody, with more than 20 books of Scottish poems and short stories. Ladies and gentlemen, that really is a serious burden unit in my view. I'd like you to welcome them all and invite Alan Jimison to start off first. Well, well, I'm seriously burned by that. <laughs> The task, the task to select a poem from uh, a fairly compendious uh, life's work was quite a difficult one, and I thought long and hard about it. Finally, I settled on a poem that isn't really, um, well, it's not one of his best known. It's certainly not one of his longest. <laughs> Makes it easier in the reading, and I have more time to talk about it. I settled on a poem which is called uh, Lines Written on a Banknote. It's a, it is a poem written on a banknote, and I can, in fact, show you that banknote, I think. <laughs> Through the miracle of technology. <laughs> if we, has it gone to sleep? Well, maybe I can. <laughs> it's gone to sleep. I can, there we are, yes. So, if I just scroll up a little bit from here, then I can show you the, uh, the front of it as well as the back. Oh, too far, too far. There we go. You can see it now. So this is a one guinea note issued on the 1st of March, 1780, from the Bank of Scotland, promising the governor and company of the Bank of Scotland promised to uh, pay the bearer on demand one pound, one shilling, by order of the court of directors, and at the bottom we have the signatures of two of those. Now, on the rear of this, we find a very interesting poetic intervention, which is the, the handiwork of, as you will see, R.B. down here. And up in the top corner there, the top right-hand corner, I don't know if you can quite see, there's a little calculation down there. He's working out uh, something to do with his income. Uh, and it does ultimately arrive at uh, £25. This dates from, we're told, 1786, which is the year that he arrives here in Edinburgh. You perhaps know the story, how he uh, had fallen on difficult times in his native Ayrshire, uh, was pursued um, by uh, the parents of his uh, love, Jean Armour, who was expecting at the time, pursued also by the Kirk, the old lechts who were after him for various anti-clerical works that he had published, or had at least at that stage performed. He needed to get out. He needed to find a way out of there, and he did what a lot of Caledonians of the time did. He thought about the empire. He thought specifically about Jamaica, and an estate near Port Antonio, owned by a fellow Ayrshire man, Charles Douglas, and he was offered there 
a job as a bookkeeper. Now that may seem to be quite a nice, quiet little job. But actually, being a bookkeeper really was quite a bit more complicated than that. Being a bookkeeper, according to DR in the Burns Chronicle, January 1911, being a bookkeeper involved being at once a slave and a free man, a slave and slave driver. The bookkeeping portion of duties of even a modern bookkeeper in Jamaica formed far and away the least part of these duties. The bookie had control of gangs of Negroes in the field, in the bowling house, the still house. To get a move on, as the Yankees say, the whip was applied to the Negro hide at that times as thoughtfully or thoughtlessly as the nigger driver had applied the raw to my yokes a few minutes ago. In addition to a liberality of whipcord, the Jamaican slave laws of the period admitted of such attentions as branding, dismemberment, and other mutilations, and with such cases the bookkeepers were more or less associated. So this was no uh, easy sinecure that he was going to, and it was certainly something that um, sat awkwardly with him. So, anyway, he needed nine guineas. He needed nine guineas to pay his fare to get him there. And uh, Gavin Hamilton, another of his Ayrshire connections, suggested that he should publish his poems, his poems which had been circulating in Ayrshire and which had gained for him a reputation. And that process was uh, set in motion. 612 copies published on the 31st of July, 1786. You can work it out. Three shillings a go, that's seven to the guinea. He needed nine guineas. He needed 63 copies to sell. By subscription, the whole 612 went. So he was already a much richer man than he imagined himself to be. Beyond that, he got a call from the Literati of Edinburgh to come here. The book was so successful, so popular, that he was wanted and so he borrowed a pony, and he rode here to Edinburgh. He came here to Edinburgh bearing in his back pocket a ticket that would take him to Jamaica. And he carried in his back pocket a ticket for another ship sailing from Leith in December, throughout the time that he circulated among the Edinburgh literati here. Where he did, yes, he did offend people. But he was also a very proud man, and he felt that he had a richness that the well-to-do Edinburgh people did not happen. That came from the earth. That came from the fact that he was a ploughman, that he understood the land. He carried with him a certain richness of the earth. So he didn't come here begging as such. So this, this particular poem here that I'm going finally to read to you, 12 lines, uh, it, uh, it's a, a very simple thing in many ways. Lines written on a banknote. It says here in this bicentenary edition, in the handwriting of Barnes, copied from a banknote in the possession of James F. Gracie of Dumfries. The notice of the Bank of Scotland dated to the 1st March 1780. The verses appear to have been first published in the Morning Chronicle of 27th May 1814. They appeared in the Scots Magazine for September of that same year. Very simple little poem. Way worth thy power, thou cursed leaf, fell source of ah, my woe and grief, 
For lack of thee I've lost my lass, for lack of thee I scrimp my glass. I see the children of affliction, unaided through thy cursed restriction. I've seen the oppressor's cruel smile amid his hapless victim's spile. And for thy potence vainly wished to crush the villain in the dust. For lack of thee I leave this much-loved shore, never perhaps to greet all Scotland more. Very simple, written on the back of a banknote. The act itself cancelling the value of that banknote. He needed nine guineas. This note itself represents one ninth of the money that he needed to get to Jamaica. The act of writing on the back of it invalidates him. What fascinates me is what uh, Robert Crawford in Devolving Scottish Literature calls the poet's oath contained in this. And I would suggest to you that here we have a clash of systems of value. On the one hand, the note itself, worth a guinea, a lot of money back then. And on the rear, 12 lines dashed off. Not a great poem, but as a statement, as an act, incredibly powerful. Now, what would that banknote be worth? A guinea? I think considerably more. You can see it, you can find it in the Burns Cottage Museum. I think it may be a facsimile, but it is there. A very beautiful and wonderful thing, really. And I think contained within this artifact, contained within that relationship between uh, the two sides of this piece of paper, you really have the essence of the struggle that Burns himself was enduring during that summer of 1786. Whether to go and perhaps make a fortune, or whether to stay. Stay to be a father, to stay to be a poet, to stay to be, well, whatever, whatever fate would bring. And I think that uh, one of the reasons why we can now righteously celebrate Burns here and now in 2012 is because when presented with the opportunity to profit from empire, and we all know the wrongs done by Scots and others in the name of empire, he chose not to. He chose to stay. That, I think, is fundamentally why Burns is worth celebrating here and now. He made a choice. He cancelled the guinea note. He dashed off 12 lines. And with that, he was done. And so am I. <laughs> Fair far your honour's sonsy face, great chieftain of the puddin' race. All over the world tonight, people will be reciting this poem. Burns is to a haggis, of course. And perhaps people in the southwest of Scotland, in Ayrshire, in Kilmarnock, even in Glasgow, part of, Scotland, a part of the country we associate with Burns, will be feeling especially proud as they hear it. But they would be wrong. This poem is ours. First published in the Caledonian Mercury, an Edinburgh newspaper in uh, December 1786, 
then in the Scots magazine the following January, and then in the second edition of Burns's poems, chiefly in the Scottish dialect, again in Edinburgh. And this is the edition I'm going to very briefly introduce to you. Now, as Alan's already said, Burns's poems were, of course, first published in Kilmarnock in 1786, and here we can see the uh, first edition, Kilmarnock, printed by John Wilson. It sold well. Burns was keen to have a second edition, but the Kilmarnock publisher, John Wilson, insisted that Burns advance himself the, the cost of the paper. Burns didn't fancy this idea. He was already thinking, you know, maybe he would try his luck in Edinburgh. So off he went. And he travelled to Edinburgh, arriving on the 28th of November, 1787. And soon he agreed terms for the second edition of the poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect with William Creech, uh, a bookseller whose shop was a meeting place for literary figures. And we'll hear a little bit more in the next short talk about those literary figures. This is a beautiful but much later portrait uh, picture of the Creech uh, bookshop, an imagined portrait by William Fettis Douglas, but it's such a wonderful picture, I thought I would put it up there. Um, so it was a, a noted meeting point for um, literary figures and philosophical figures, and it was also where Burns's uh, second edition, the Edinburgh edition, was sold. The new edition then, published in Edinburgh in 1787, and we can see immediately that it looks quite different from the frontispiece of the other, the Kilmarnock edition. This has obviously been rebound. It wouldn't have been sold like this. There's a picture of Burns. You can see here, Edinburgh, printed uh, for the author and sold by William Creech, the guy who owned the bookstore. Now, there's something different about this edition from the Kilmarnock edition. The first thing is that Burns perhaps doesn't want to project an image of himself as the self-taught ploughman. It's not quite the same, perhaps, as the Kilmarnock edition. Can you, did you just want it? Did you want it to know? Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Go back, yeah. So you see here, it's kind of nice, but look here at the um, epigram. Uh, The simple bard, sorry, sorry, I put them in the wrong order. <laughs> yeah, the simple bard, unbroke by rules of art, he pours the wild effusions of the heart, and if inspired, tis nature's prowess, uh, it's tis nature's powers inspire. Hers all the melting thrill, and hers the kindling fire. He removes this idea that he is the the self-taught plowman, the heaven-taught plowman, as Henry Mackenzie uh, had called him. But it didn't quite, this wasn't quite the uh, impact he wanted to portray. Go back one. Now, the Kilmarnock edition is obviously a very iconic and important edition. Um, but the Edinburgh edition, our edition, is also important. It contains 19 poems that aren't in the Kilmarnock edition, including, of course, to a haggis. <coughs> It's also important because of the number of people who read it. And this is a uh, summary, it's not exact, just rounded up for you to see. The difference between the Kilmarnock and the Edinburgh editions. 600 copies printed to 2,800 copies. 
350 people subscribe to the Gurmanak, 1,500 people subscribe. You, this is a very common way of selling books in the 18th century. People would pay in advance for the book, for their copy, and they would have their names in the back, like, kind of like in a theatre programme where you see the sponsors and the subscribers to a, to a play. The Edinburgh edition then reminds us that Burns wasn't just the poet ploughman, although he was that, that his success was in part due, and this is why he had come to Edinburgh, to some highly placed friends. He wanted to reach as wide a readership as possible, from his drinking companions in the alehouse, whom he addresses in a number of his poems, to people like, for example, the Earl of Glencairn. Burns had been given an introduction to the Earl of Glencairn. They were both the Masons, as we all to do with Masons. So he'd been given an introduction to Glencairn in Kilmarnock. Glencairn had read and admired the Kilmarnock edition. And it was Glencairn who managed to swell the subscription lists of the Edinburgh edition through his connections both in Edinburgh and, crucially, in London. It follows the same part, pattern as uh, Scott's Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border, published first in Kelso, its uh, success, then published in Edinburgh, many more uh, editions published, volumes published, it sells in London. The Edinburgh edition was also the first time readers had a chance to see what Burns looked like. Can you go back there? Yeah, there he is. That's a portrait that was actually left unfinished by Alexander Naismith, then a, an apprentice portrait, portrait painter, soon to be very famous, very celebrated, also an illustrator of um, many other writers. The painting was uh, engraved by a guy called John Bugo, who actually knew Burns, and that's the first time that people knew in general what Burns looked like. I've also mentioned, I've already mentioned that the Edinburgh edition removes the epigram. So it's not um, just the self-taught, heaven-taught plowman and this rather distinguished figure, have my own book printed for me, sold by a very well-known literary figure, William Creech, and here is my beautiful book. I want to end with a stanza from uh, one other poem which appears again for the first time in the Edinburgh edition. And not surprisingly, because it is the address to Edinburgh, Adina Scotia's darling seat. Here wealth still, it's talking about Edinburgh, here wealth still swells the golden tide as busy trade his labours plies. Their architecture's noble pride bids elegance and splendour rise. Oh, quite true, I'm sure you'll agree. Here justice from her native skies, high wheels her balance and her rod. Their learning with his eagle eyes seeks science in her coy abode. All the marvellous things which were true of Edinburgh then and now, apart from possibly <laughs> wealth, we won't quieter about that today. <coughs> Architecture, the new town, is just beginning, just being built in the se- early stages in the 1760s. Justice, it's where the law courts are situated. The one thing that isn't listed in Burns' list of all the marvellous things that are true of Edinburgh is literature. This is a book that was published by William Creech in a bookshop which had previously belonged to Alan Ramsay, the first great Scottish poet of the 18th century, whom Burns was very influenced by. He didn't mention Ramsay or or Robert Ferguson, another Scottish poet that Burns was very influenced by. I kind of like that, but I'd like to leave you here with that idea that Burns came to Edinburgh to start a literary tradition, not just to uh, continue one. Thank you. That's my talk. I'm going to start by taking you through, really. I, um, 
a picture which, like the one that Penny has just shown you, the Fetus Douglas one, is actually after the fact. It represents a meeting that did take place, but it doesn't do that representing until much later in the century. This is actually the uh, record, the, the visual record that we have of uh, the first and only meeting of Robert Burns here and Walter Scott here. Uh, and it was painted by uh, Charles Hardy, you can see quite a minor painter, but somebody who um, was capturing a moment, essentially. And that, this is, a, this is a, an iconography in itself, I think, of the Scottish Enlightenment, some of its variety, and some of the um, significance that by the end of the 19th century, this, this painting was, um, was uh, produced in 1893, uh, was being ascribed backwards in time uh, to Burns's visit to Edinburgh, and uh, as a, as a moment in perhaps the shift in what we might see as as the, the sort of early philosophical um, historical phase of the Scottish Enlightenment towards something that we would now I think associate much more perhaps with the work of of Walter Scott, the Romantic Edinburgh, the Edinburgh um, of uh, extraordinary happenings of uh, um, scenery, uh, conflicts of a, a historical kind. And just to, the, this, this painting, by the way, is now in the Chambers Institute in Peebles, and you can actually go and, and see it, and it's been engraved and, and re-engraved, and uh, it's uh, on sale as a postcard at Abbotsford, if you ever go and visit <laughs> Scott's um, uh, home in the borders. But just to give you a sense of who's in it, apart from Burns and Scott, this is Adam Ferguson, whose house it is. It's Sheen's Hill House, um, not very far from here, although it no longer exists as such, in Braid Place on the Causeway side. And Ferguson is holding a salon, which is uh, a sort of... Well, uh, it's, a, it's a Scottish version of something that, that um, the, uh, the, the, the Scots picked up from uh, an earlier enlightenment in, in France, a sort of meeting of people uh, to discuss earnest but also poetic and, and um, belletristic subjects, uh, usually after dinner but before a supper that would be served. And so uh, we've got Adam Ferguson here as the uh, clearly the host poking the fire and so on. We have Robert Burns and Scott, and I'll come back uh, to them in a minute. Um, this lad at the back is um, Ferguson's son, Ferguson Jr., and I think he's partly there um, to show the dynastic aspect of the Scottish Enlightenment. I mean, it's extraordinary how many of the people who were professors uh, in this university in the course of the 18th century simply handed on their chairs to their sons or their nephews <coughs> or you know, the next in line. There were three generations of uh, anatomists called Monroe, uh, though it was a, you know, pretty much in your gift, the person you wanted to succeed uh, to you. Um, so we've got we've got Ferguson. We've got Dougal Stewart, who is very important um, in the story of Burns in Edinburgh, because uh, contrary to the myth that has grown up about um, about Burns coming when he had suddenly heard that he was being hailed in Edinburgh after the uh, surprising success of the Kilmarnock edition, um, Burns actually already knew Dougal Stewart, who had a house near Mocklin, and who had invited uh, Burns to to come and meet him. Stuart, uh, who was, uh, became a professor of um, moral philosophy and wrote one of the uh, big synoptic works of Scottish Enlightenment philosophy, was also a great broker of, of meetings. Um, he was impressed by Burns's poems. 
he read three of them to the blind poet Thomas Blacklock, um, who became uh, known as a sort of uh, Scottish Homer, um, largely, I think, on the uh, strength of his blindness than more than in poetry, which <laughs> hasn't survived very much. Um, but Blacklock was a, something of an arbiter, and again, his blindness gave him his special status, his special ear. Um, and he uh, started telling his poetic friends that he was a, a, a grand new talent. Um, Stuart was one of the people whom uh, uh, Burns came uh, to meet specifically in coming to Edinburgh. He was sort of invited partly um, by Stuart, who wanted to introduce him to, to this circle of um, enlightened literati. Um, and uh, Stuart is responsible for the meeting with uh, Henry Mackenzie, which led then to Mackenzie writing his now famous or infamous review of uh, Burns's poems, which include the, the immortal, um, possibly sadly, uh, phrase, uh, Heaven Taught Plowman, for the first time. Now, of course, um, Mackenzie, in, in doing that, uh, was merely picking up um, a, a, a clue that he'd been given by Burns himself. I mean, as Penny said, both in uh, the, the terms that the Kilmarnock edition was framed and in the, the brief preface that Burns himself wrote uh, to that edition, introducing himself as a poet. Um, and he gives all the signals, Burns, um, to, the, uh, to the Enlightenment in, in Scotland. Um, he, he knew all the writings of these people already. He gives them the signals as to how to read him. And then it becomes a kind of millstone round his neck because when he gets to Edinburgh, because everybody thinks, oh, the heaven top plowman, you know, and patronises him in both senses of the word um, uh, um, very ferociously. So here he is being taken up as flavour of the month. Um, and then there's Joseph Black, um, the famous chemist and, and again, professor in uh, scientific subjects uh, at Edinburgh. Adam Smith, the author of The Wealth of Nations, uh, by this stage, as well as The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and again, absolutely pivotal, one of the two great geniuses of the Scottish Enlightenment, along with David Hume, who somehow has skillet out of this picture, but you know, doubtless should have been there. Um, John Hume, um, spelt with an O rather than a U, who was the author, uh, and uh, by this stage, again, a celebrity uh, of, of the work uh, Douglas, uh, supposed by the Scottish Enlightenment uh, to be the great Scottish play of the 18th century and when it was first performed in um, uh, in the theatre uh, <coughs> down near Princess Street um, uh, it, it was rapturously applauded and uh, a voice was heard to call uh, again famously from from the audience Shakespeare and uh, it was then taken in triumph to London to be uh, performed as, as Scotland's answer to Wally Shakespeare. So uh, Sir John Hume has to be in the picture as well, because clearly he is another figure that the Scottish Enlightenment wants to adopt as one of its, um, one of its own, one of its um, uh, native products, to show that Scotland had its own national and uh, historic uh, literature, which could uh, encompass the whole range of genres from the pastoral, the, the rustic, which Burns, of course, represents, and uh, to uh, the epic uh, form of this uh, play that, that John Hume represents. And then uh, right at the edge there in front of um, the lady, you see the ladies are on a separate ta table um, enjoying their tea, um, is uh, uh, James Hutton, the geologist who was at that point formulating his new 
theory, not only of the Earth and the history of the Earth, but of the age of the Earth. Um, absolutely revolutionary key um, theory, and it's one of the things that, um, although it made very little stir immediately, because Hutton's own prose style left a great deal to be um, desired, and actually nobody could understand what it was he was saying, has become one of uh, the crucial turning points in uh, late 18th, early 19th century science. So looking around, we can see the books that show this is a learned and a literary sort of occasion. We can see uh, the meeting here of Burns on the one hand and Scott on the other as, as key, it's the focal point. Between them is a picture, and the story goes that Burns admires this picture, which is called The Justice of the Peace, uh, and uh, uh, in fact is, according to the story, moved to tears. But it's, a, it's a very sentimental uh, um, painting. Uh, and underneath it there is a little epigraph, a bit like the lines that, that Penny quoted that Burns had, um, had extracted for his own edition to introduce it. And so Burns turns around to the assembled com uh, company and says, you know, who's this epigraph by? It's astonishingly moving. And all these learned uh, Enlightenment people scratch their heads and say, oh, never thought of that, never, no, don't know, know nothing about poetry, really, you know, you're the expert. And the young Walter Scott at that point stands up and says, please, sir, it's by John Langhorne. Uh, and this is a crucial moment because it represents, and this is what's being, being portrayed here, I think, the handing on, if you like, of one generation of... Uh, Scottish writing which has emerged from the Enlightenment context to the next and uh, this is the, the young Scott um, both making his presence felt in this learned um, uh, uh, assemblage and uh, establishing a rapport you see the eye contact that is being made by the two poets, that's the key thing that's going on Burns' uh, shafts of genius are passing themselves to Scott who is fully receptive because he's um, already you know, has this tradition imbibed and he is the person who can say what this is about. Now Scott much later in his own memoirs and, and separately in a letter describes this moment which um, becomes as I say a, a, a kind of a key in the um, uh, in the history of, of a, a Scottish literature which is being propounded by these writers. Um, so uh, he he writes uh, about this meeting um, of Burns. His person was strong and robust. I think his countenance was more massive than it looks in any of his portraits. Uh, um, I would I would have uh, for sure known who he was as a very sagacious country farmer of the old Scottish school. So he he immediately places him from his uh, dress as not a, an inhabitant of Edinburgh, but somebody who, who inhabits in his own person a whole um, area of Scotland. His eyes were large and glowed, I say literally glowed, when he spoke with feeling and interest. I never saw such eyes in a human head, though I have seen the most distinguished men in my time. And by this stage, of course, um, Scott has quite a reputation um, as a writer himself. His conversation expressed perfect self-confidence without the slightest presumption. Among the men who were the most learned of their time and country, he expressed himself with perfect firmness, but without the least intrusive forwardness. And that represents, in a sense, the dilemma that Burns possibly unwittingly had set himself in um, sending the message of his heaven-taught ploughmanness to Edinburgh ahead of himself, um, that he then spent most of the time he was in Edinburgh 
trying to indicate and to express both directly and indirectly his independence of uh, the patronage of the people, uh, the very people from whom um, he was seeking support and subscriptions for the next edition and money. And so this man of independent means becomes uh, a crucial part of the new persona that Burns presents Enlightenment Edinburgh uh, with, and sometimes problematically and sometimes insultingly, as uh, Randall has suggested, either wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, so we, we see a, a whole meeting of versions of, of Enlightenment and, and the progress of Enlightenment in Edinburgh in this one picture, I think. And I'll stop there. Good evening. Hope you're well. Um, I come from the north of Ireland, and I don't really know Burns all that well at all. And I speaking here tonight from a position of relative ignorance um, and I thought that ignorance would be one of the best things for me to talk about um, in whatever narrow circles I happen to find myself in um, Burns' songs are very much part of the currency without a doubt there's a lovely tradition of um, musicians and singers going backwards and forwards between particularly Ulster and Scotland um, and there's been many nights um, um, where I've, I've you know, felt very much akin to the songs, but the poems are always another matter. Um, I believe in Northern Ireland there are more Burns suppers and Burns clubs than anywhere else apart from Scotland. Um, but I've never seen them. Um, and I certainly, it's something that I would have been very, very wary of. And I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, and I'm sure... Well, it is. It's a truism that the the cultural phenomenon of Burns sometimes does get in the way of reading Burns. Um, one's aware of such a, a mass of uh, mythology, the size of the compendious volume that my um, friend Alan was um, struggling to hold up. Um, there's, there's there's many reasons actually to shy away from Burns. From if you're an outsider, um, I did come to him very late therefore and it was just a tiny wee book poet to poet favour series I bought it less than 10 years ago um, and reading the what you might call the, the high literary poems the ones in Scots written in very very precise um, stanzas were of course a complete revelation to me um, the sort of oh my god why wasn't I reading a much earlier sort of uh, sensation that I that I get so often um, but but even then what struck me was um, okay these when he's good he is very very good indeed but it, it struck me that it's still there's in specifically Northern Irish literary culture Burns is not a feature he's not really part of the ecosphere of, of serious poetic ambition Heaney is an exception he's written some essays um, written a, um, a poem in Standard Habby um, uh, but he almost sticks out like a sore thumb there's very very uh, um, there's nobody else I can think of Patrick Kavanagh Ireland's own 20th century famous peasant poet and heaven taught plowman in quite compendious criticism, um, lectures notes, never mentions Burns that I'm aware of um, and I, I wonder why I guess the, um, the such similarity um, reading a biography of Burns 
Um, I come from the east of Belfast, um, the Arts Peninsula, and from there, you know, from Donegal to Port Patrick's 22 miles. And it, reading the biography of, of Burns and Ayrshire, it's the same place. Also, there is um, the sectarianism is more formative and, and, and more vicious, um, but but even that is 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 an overlap. Um, it was only uh, uh, I, I decided to um, be more ambitious. I still have no appetite for the big book, but Robert Crawford's Best Light Schemes came out two years ago, last year. Um, I came across specifically the Holy Fair and the cantata, the Jolly Beggars or Love and Liberty. And then it clicked that there was actually a, a very... Um, striking sort of parallel Irish language poet called Brian Merriman from the county of Clare um, specifically a poem he wrote in 1780 called what translates as the Midnight Court um, the long poem which the speaker is uh, falls asleep in the first uh, couple of lines and is transported to the court to the Queen of Fairies and in the court there's a, there's a, a discussion with the um, by an, an, an all all women sort of, um, uh, uh, what's the word, assembly, um, where they discuss how useless the men of Ireland are. Um, <laughs> o- always drunk, useless around the house, and specifically uh, at great lengths, useless in bed. Um, and that, that, the sort of the carnivalesque burns that you get in those great poems, Holy Fair, um, Love and Liberty, and the carnivalesque of, of Merriman, and the... the um, the similarity of dates, I think, is very striking, and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed there's not more sort of scholarly critical work on such a sort of um, overlap. But specifically, what you get with the Merryman, which is exactly what you get in Burns, is this delightful glee at its own randiness. Um, and you get this switching from high to low, from high rhetoric to low, sort of dirty, dirty jokes and street talk within a couple of lines and the ability to swerve from one to the other without missing a beat and especially, especially, especially what you get is rhyme and rhyme and rhyme the, the wit very much being the vehicle of the humour, the energy and what strikes with both cases I mean that's the truth is as, as one who spends some time mostly <coughs> dismally trying to write half decent poems of my own you read other people with an ear to, your, to yourself um, with, with, with Burns coming to him relatively freshly and recently, coming, I only came across Merriman in a new translation about five, six years ago. The question is, why does nobody write like that anymore to me? Um, that ranging, randy rhyming, there's not enough of it in, in our own day and age. Um, I, I guess there's various reasons. I've, the um, you know there's there's enough smut on TV we don't need it in poetry anymore. That there's a like some kind of epistemological problem with rhyming to the extent that Burns and people like Merriman do it. It's very very hard to make it not sound nursery rhymes to make it sound very very twee. But it does strike me that you know there's there's a something missing in contemporary verse with, without this sort of um, this folky sort of energy that that, that Burns supplies. Um, but on reading him for today, you know, it's it's not it's it's not just the roundiness; it's the ambition with the vernacular being put into these ambitious sort of stanzic forms. 
um, which um, that, that uh, open-ended irony where you're not quite sure who the joke's on. It's on the speaker, it's on the person being spoken about, it's on everything is up for satire, and yet everything is um, partially has a, a space for redemption within that same breath. There's something uh, in that true carnivalesque where the good and you know we have um, you know there's deep wisdom and Benny Hill in the same phrase. <laughs> I think that that's what's missing today in, in, in contemporary verse. But re- reading them for today, um, I was also struck. Um, you know, I sort of said Burton Burns gives you a challenge. That's how I read him. Um, I know sort of many people have been there before. Um, especially early McDermott and saying, well, let's cut the cant and let, let's get the, the real poetry out and see what the real challenge is. The challenge remains what it, today what it was for McDermott back then. Um, vernacular poetry the last 30, 40 years certainly emphasises attrition, I think is fair to say. It wants to give you a slap in the face and does so very successfully. I think Burns gives you the slap in the face, without a doubt, at his sharpest. But he's also can give you a great sonic snog within the same sort of couple of within the same stanza. And that that's what's missing, that versatility. And reading him for today, I mean what struck me is, you know, I was thinking I've been thinking for a few years now we need the carnivalesque and we need that facility for and for wit um, back and that sort of social engagement. But actually, it, it struck me what would possibly be even more radical is that other aspect of those great Burns poems, which is just it's it's kind of honest-to-goodness, simplistic endeavour to be optimistic and to celebrate the good things in life. Um, there's a challenge for contemporary poetry as well. And that brings me back to the, the idea of the Burns Supper. Um, I guess... Um, when I was getting into poetry, I didn't. I, I, I had a series of meetings with people just in bars, people I didn't know, who um, ended up talking about poetry. And that series of people turned out to be Burns aficionados and people who facilitate Burns suppers. And I remember, you know, talking to them. Um, I was outraged. I thought there was some. There's a Masonic element to it, and it is tied into sectarian realities of the time and in, 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 in Dark Ulster and all the rest of it, but. Uh, I just uh, thought this was horrible. And I was just thinking this this afternoon, what one guy actually said to me, and I said, what do you do? I said, well, we drink whiskey, and we eat food, and we celebrate the good things in life, and friendship, and poetry, and song. And for some reason, I turned around and said, that's, I'm not having that, that's not good enough. <laughs> I just, it, it, it strikes me. Um, as an odd thing, so uh, no doubt I thought this has to be stamped out of Northern Ireland, <laughs> and I don't know why I wasn't thinking there should be more of this in, in Northern Ireland. So it turns out that uh, today has been uh, the last few days. As, well, I realise it's, it's it's me who's the pompous git and the hypocrite, <laughs> which leads me to the poem I'm going to read, which is Holy Willie's Prayer, the great poem of hypocrisy. This is Belfast Scots. It's going to be a Travis thing. (laughs) That's the way it is. O thou that in the heavens dost dwell, wha as it pleases best thyself, sends in to heaven and tend to hell, all for thy glory, and no for any good or ill they've done before thee. 
I bless and praise thy matchless might when thousands thou hast left in night that I am here before thy sight for gifts and grace a burning and a shining light to all this place what was I or my generation that I should get such exaltation I who deserve most just damnation for broken laws six thousand years are my creation through Adam's cause when from my mother's womb I fell, thou might I plunge me deep in hell, to gnash my gums and weep and wail in burning lakes, where damned devils roar and yell, chained to their stakes. Yet I am here, a chosen sample, to show thy grace is great and ample. I'm here, a pillar of thy temple, strong as a rock, a guide, a ruler, an example to all thy flock. O Lord, that can what zeal I bear when drinkers drink and swearers swear and singing there and dancing here were great and small for I am keep it by thy fear free from them all. But yet, O Lord, confess I must at times I'm fashed with fleshly lust and sometimes too in worldly trust vile self gets in but thou remembers we are dust defiled with sin. O Lord, yestreen, thy can we make. Thy pardon I sincerely beg. O may it ne'er be a living plague to my dishonour, and I'll ne'er lift a lawless leg again upon her. Besides, I further mon avoy, Valise's lass, three times I try but Lord, that Friday I was foo, when I come nearer, or else thy kin, thy servant true, would never steer her. Maybe thou lets this fleshly thorn buffet thy servant e'en and mourn, lest he or proud and high should turn that he's say gifted. If say thy hand manin be born until thou liftest. Lord, bless thy chosen in this place, for here thou hast a chosen race. But God, confound their stubborn face and blast their name, who bring thy rulers to disgrace and open shame. Lord, mind gone Hamilton's deserts. He drinks and swears and plays at carts. Yet has say money talking arts were great and small. For God's impriest, the people's hearts he steals away. And when we chastened him, therefore, thy ken how he bred sick explore, and set the world in a roar a laughing at us. Curse thou his basket and his store, heel and potatoes. Lord, hear my earnest cry and prayer against that presbytery of air. Thy strong right hand, Lord, make it bare upon their heads. Lord, visit them, and then a spare for their misdeeds. O Lord, my God, that glib-tongued aching, my very heart and flesh are quaking, to think how I sat sweating, shaking, and pissed with dread, while I'll we hanging lip-gage sneaking and hid his head. Lord, in thy day of vengeance triumph, Lord, visit him that did employ him, and pass not in thy mercy by him, nor hear their prayer, but for thy people's sake destroy them, and then spare. But Lord, remember me, 
and mine, we mercies temporal and divine, that I for grace and gear may shine, excelled by none, and all thy glory shall be thine. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Hello, I'm going to uh, start with the poem um, and then talk a little bit about it. Uh, I'm Scottish, but I don't know a great deal about Burns either, though I did memorise Tam O'Shanter when I was a kid, but the amount that I still remember is shrinking year by year. I'm going to read uh, A Poet's Welcome to His Love Begotten Daughter, the first instance that entitled him to the venerable appellation of Father also known as a welcome to a bastard wain. Thou's welcome wain, Miss Shanter fami, if thought so thee or yet thy mammy shall ever daunt in me or awe me, my sweet wee lady, or if I blush when thou shalt call me tita or daddy, what though they call me fornicator and tease my name in kintra clatter, the mere they talk, I'm kind the better, e'en let them clash. An old wife's tongue a feck, tongue's a feckless matter to gee in fash. Welcome, my bonny sweet wee doctor, though you come here a wee unsocht for, and though you're coming I hae focht for, both kirk and queer, yet by my faith you're no unrocht for. That I shall swear. Sweet fruit, o money a merry dint, my funny toil is no artint. Though thou come to the world a glint, which fools may scoff at, in my last plaque thy parts be in it, the better half o' it. Though I should be the war bestead, thou's be as braw and beanly clad. And thy young years as nicely bred with education as only brat o' wedlock's bed and all thy station. We image, O oh my bonny Betty, as fatherly I kiss and dot thee, as dear and near my heart I set thee, with as good will as all the priests has seen me get thee that's out o' hell. Good grant that thou may I inherit thy mither's looks and graceful merit, and thy poor worthless daddy's spirit without his feelings, to please me mere to see thee heir it than stock it mealings. And if thou be what I wad hae thee, and tack the counsel I shall gie thee, I'll never rue my troubles with thee, the cost nor shame o' it, but be a loving father to thee, and brag the name of it. In 1785, uh, 11 years after Burns first committed the sin of rhyme, when he was living at Mosgiel, a farm near Mochlin, where many of his major poems were written, his first child, Elizabeth, was born to Elizabeth Peyton, who had been a servant to Burns's mother, Agnes, before his father's death and the move to Mosgiel. As well as a poem in his daughter's honour, the visible proof of the sin of fornication, or as Burns has it, the sweet fruit o' money a merry dint, which sounds a lot better than fornication, (laughs) 
also resulted in his first reprimand from the Kirk session and a fine of a guinea. So guineas tying up nicely with Alan's poem earlier on. Um, <clears throat> when the child was weaned, she was cared for by Burns's mother Agnes under the protection of his brother Gilbert. And after the publication of the Kilmarnock edition, Elizabeth Payton made a claim upon Burns for maintenance, clothing and education of the said child till it arrives at the fixed age of 10 years complete. But she later discharged this claim and it would appear settled for a payment of £20. <clears throat> After Burns's death in 1796, by some strange twist of fate 10 years later, Elizabeth Payton took her daughter home with her and the child received £200 from the public fund. The poem itself was not published during Burns' lifetime, though he included it in a volume of handwritten manuscripts presented to Captain Robert Riddle of Glenriddle. When Burns' request, the volume was returned to Burns after Riddle's death in 1794, that Glenriddle manuscripts passed through several hands before being presented by John Gribble of Philadelphia to the Scottish nation in 1914. A poet's autobiography is his poetry, says Yevgeny Yevtushenko. Anything else is just a footnote. Well, at the last count I remember in 1993, which is actually nearly 20 years ago, there were at that point 901 biographies of Burns in existence. I know there are more since then, so that's quite a few footnotes. Um, I was talking recently to a Russian poet couple, and Burns came up, as he often does when you talk to people abroad, because he really is our best export, I would say. Uh, and I asked rather naively whether Russians liked his work because of his pronouncements on social equality. Not at all, I was told, quite firmly. We like Burns because he was fond of drinking and women. <laughs> <laughs> and Burns' fondness for the ladies is possibly better known than his poetry, as Liz Lockhead in Mrs. Abernethy Burns the Hero makes hilariously clear. Don't you think it would have been absolutely super to have been immortalised by Robert Burns? <laughs> what a man, eh? Such passion and such eyes. I think she was reading um, Sir Walter Scott's description of Burns. And his profligacy, his profligacy in begetting is also well known. Thirteen children, five born out of wedlock. And the last son, Maxwell, was again by a twist of fate born on the day of Burns's funeral. Um, Alan mentioned the, Alan Gillis mentioned the, the form that has been used for uh, both Holy Willie's Prayer and for this poem, Standard Harvey, uh, which has become inextricably connected with Burns, but it's, it's an older form. Uh, Ramsey, Ferguson and other poets writing in Scots used it. And it seems that the name comes not from Rabbi, but from the poem Harvey Simpson, the Piper of Kilbarkin, by Robert Semple of Belltrees and the opening stanza of which is Now who shall play the day it dawns or hunt up when the cock he crows or who can for the Kirktown cause stand us instead on bagpipes now nobody blows St. Abbey's dead Now this is a lament but <clears throat> even in this lament there's a buoyant rhythm the tetrameter alternating with the punchy diameter of lines 4 and 6 which breaks the flow and adds a note of drama. The poet Carol Rumens describes standard Harvey as a jauntily combative form, a quality which might be that of Burns the Man. 
<coughs> there's certainly a combative thread that runs through this poem. The form too lends itself to the double end rhymes and potentially to comedy, though here I would say Burns uses it to a more subtle end, particularly in stanza three. Could we go back um, a bit? Hmm. We're on now, thanks. Welcome, my bonny sweet wee doctor. Will you come here a wee unsocked for, and though you're coming, I hae focht for, both Kirk and Queer. Yet by my faith you're no unrocked for, that I shall swear. I think this stanza could be a test of Scots pronunciation. Anybody who comes from south of the border tends to find that sound quite difficult to pronounce. But here, <coughs> to me, the rhymes create an impression of more of a gently rocking caress. It's not, it's not comic, it's, it's soft, it's swinging. And another thing that happens all the way through this, Alan Jameson earlier was talking about the two sides of the banknote, the two sides of what's going on with Burns. In this poem, while he's addressing his daughter, he's got one eye on the naysayers, the people that are wanting to do him down, the people are wanting to criticise him. He's very aware of how his actions have been received. Um, it's a poem that doesn't, in a way, shy away from or underplay sentiment. The sentiment by itself, <coughs> sincere or otherwise, doesn't usually guarantee art. It's certainly no measure for it. You only have to look at the heartfelt, emotive verses on gravestones and park benches to know that. But here, there's such a whirl of emotions, w contradictory emotions playing off each other, which to me is a, is a very true reflection of what parenthood induces, at least the first time around. You're just, your life has changed so drastically. You're full of so many new feelings, uh, and they just come at you and come at you. And no sooner has Burns is expressed his joy at his new status in stanza one, can go back again, um, than he's questioning his own possible response to it. Thou's welcome win. Mishanter for me, that means disaster or ill fate fall, fall upon me if I am embarrassed by you, if I question your existence. And by the way, the old Mishanter is a term which means the devil, which I just discovered recently myself. So, again, it's quite a—it's almost like cursing himself if he doesn't own up to the knowledge or the paternity of this child. And this poem is, I feel, quite open in language. It's uh, more conversational than many in tone and in diction. It's Burns that is most direct, most self-exploratory. But it's not just a welcome to his daughter swinging between his firstborn and complimenting the mother to cocking a snook at gossips and clergy who taint his joy with their own sanctimoniousness. And then, is there also in stanza two it's a little bit of a desire for notoriety or fame? What, though they call me fornicator, and tease my name in kintra clatter, the mere they talk, I'm kenned the better. The more they talk, I'm better known. Um, perhaps in the 1780s, no publicity was bad publicity either. Don Patterson says in um, a piece in The Guardian in 2010 on Burns Day that Burns' central insight is that the spiritual, the social, the sexual, the natural 
the political and the humorous are overlapping human realms, not separate or competing ones. And maybe that echoes a little bit about what Alan Gillis was suggesting, that poetry has to try to contain the high, the low, the funny, the serious, to, to not just necessarily have a kind of um, blinkered approach. And this poem is very much got no blinkered approach. There's an awareness of the individual, of the family unit, of society. The joy and the awe of a first-time parent is tempered with and strengthened by, I think, a determination to withstand public disapproval. It's this fierce desire to defend one's child against the world, which is hardwired into most, if not all, parents. I wonder, though, in the final stanza, we could just nip on to that, if there's just a hint of authoritarianism. For though he be, or for if thou be what I would hear thee, and tack the counsel I shall give thee, I'll never rue my trouble with thee. In other words, if you do what I tell you, you take my <laughs> advice, um, I wouldn't mind if you're my daughter. Well, okay, I expect we're, uh, this is a kind of contemporary take on it. We wouldn't expect fathers to behave like that. Nowadays, we'd expect them to be a little bit more open-minded about what their children might choose to, to do, whether or not to take their advice. But, um, you know, do we, do we forgive Burns for this, desire for obedience, or admire his honesty? I'll leave that with you. A poet's welcome to his love-begotten daughter is a sentimental poem in the best sense. It ranges through expressions of joy, shame, doubt, defiance, tenderness, anxiety, and finally, unashamedly, pride. That's me done. Thank you. So, it would be tempting to turn around to Colmarnock, would it not, and say, Hor, here, Randy Burns, the new, he belongs to Edinburgh, and they do from a Saturday night, Edinburgh belongs to him and all. <laughs> uh, before we did conclude that, we'd want to, to be aware of those overlapping human realms that Dillashow's just proposed to us, and to be aware that Burns belonged also to the Enlightenment. It turns out he belongs to Northern Ireland, he belongs to fatherhood and all that great list of attributes that Dillis gave us. And finally, to go back to where we started, it turns out that his promise to pay the bearer in poetry transcends even money itself. These are good conclusions for us. Before we wrap up all together, ladies and gentlemen, just two things. One is informational. I know when you saw that slide when you came in, you were frantically trying to write down the website address. You don't actually need to pick up a piece of paper in the way out, which has the address, which gives all the events in the 2012 celebrations that we yet know of. There are a number which don't actually appear yet in the list in the back. But like Barnes, I can promise that bearers of this piece of paper will be free to come and join us for readings, one of which Alan Gillis will be introducing Alan Warner in a few weeks. We're also getting Douglas Dunn and Andy Gregg to come and read for us. We're getting from a quite different sphere, Philippa Gregory, to come and read for us on International Women's Day. A little bit further away, we have got Stefan Collini, whom you may know as a critic in The Guardian and a critic of the government and its university policies, will be coming to talk to us in May. There are book festival events, there's an exhibition. I could not, even if hours were to spare, tell you how many wonderful things are going to happen. So do come back and join us for those events in future. 
meantime, I just wanted to thank all those who were hired once again. I thought that was a terrific session, so thanks to Susan Manning, Penny Fielding, Alan Gillis, Della Shrows, Robert Allen Jimison. Also to Lena Wanger and the technical wizard in the corner there, trying to remain out of sight behind all the slides. In particular, I'd like to thank Dr. Penny Fielding and Swink for setting up this event from bottom to top, and it's been great. So let's thank them very much. <laughs> This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.